0: And welcome to Plants and Pets, a podcast where we meet weekly to talk about plant science and other things we love and also hate in the plant science and science world.
1: <laughs> no? Yeah, I mean, I try to leave the the hate in the unrecorded pre- and post-show segments um, where only you have to endure my disliking yeah. of some parts of the academic world. But yeah,
0: <laughs> I was I was talking to like somebody the other day about how so I mean this was in the context of dating so maybe this is a bit boring for everybody but like like <laughs> it's very weird doing a podcast um, especially like a podcast where I'm talking to you I know like a lot of people there's not like a ton of people listening to this but like Yoram, you're like one of my really really close friends so obviously we're quite casual on the podcast. And then, you know, I'm I'm trying to meet a new person and I'm like mentioning I have a podcast, but then I'm like, well, I don't really want you to listen to the podcast because I would rather you get to know me naturally instead <laughs> of sort of having this like, I mean, it's not that it's anything bad. It's just like, that's a weird thing if you have this sort of vision into yeah my world from the start. But then like also, I mean, it's in the last couple of months, it's been really hard to make the podcast from the point of view of like being drained and i mean the podcast has this weird thing where we 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 want to be somewhat well informed like obviously we're not working really really hard at that but we don't want to sound like complete idiots so we want to like sound like we do have some like (laughs) mental capacity and like kind of know what we're talking about but then also it should be like at least a little bit entertaining and you know enjoyable not just like educational um and that like there's some creativity involved in that it's it's not just Mm -hmm. like the the academic it's also creative and you know all this like interpersonal stuff as well like i think that's what i found really really hard in the last like this covid period has just sapped the creativity um and you know made it hard to 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 do that and also be joyful so i think like now <laughs> we've come to this compromise you're like you and i were we now call each other up and like scream at each other for fifteen <laughs> minutes, and then we start the podcast, and that's like, yeah. like we just have to vent and like release any frustrations into the universe, and then yeah, that's I, somehow what, <laughs> I mean, that somehow is that it's like scream therapy. The f-
1: you're one of the few people that I actually um, have like regular contact with, like like verbal contact with outside my immediate uh, circles here, so that mm. also means that every week i bring my own like baggage of <laughs> stuff that i have to t- t- uh, tell somebody who's like has shared experiences with me in when it comes to science because mm. like right now a lot of the people that i like work with they come from a different completely different background like they're more designers or they come from like social studies they, they didn't work at a like they didn't do stem they, don't have and the they context. didn't do stem at a big institute so the experience are very different and there's like some stuff that is like based on these experiences that i have to vent on sometimes and yeah there's
0: but i think also like i would say i'm lucky in you and also some of my other friends that i have a couple of friends who i can like basically just like scream at for 20 minutes Mm -hmm. and that doesn't and even if i'm like like with you especially like even if i'm screaming and disagreeing like we've had like long shouting matches where we're just like <laughs> yes. you're wrong we're like, both you're very so stubborn narrow, <laughs> yeah and like um but like you and I like obviously we love each other enough at this stage and also we like are separate enough from like our identities and our like our Things we want to fight for, like that, that doesn't seem to make <laughs> us yeah. not want to ever see each other again, which is also nice. And I have a couple of friends who I can I don't, also we technically do see world. each
1: other again. Like we technically well, w- that's true. Came to the point where just like <laughs> decided that we're not seeing each other again, um, but more because of Did, other reasons.
0: COVID? Is that like, COVID
1: and a country that's between us, but mostly COVID.
0: Yeah. I mean, one day we fought so much I had to move to England. That was basically <laughs> like you guys. The city is, is the too story. small for the two of us. <laughs> um, I think we all know that if that happened, you would leave, even if it's like <laughs> your native country and your language, like pretty sure you would have to go. <laughs> Just yeah, most
1: likely. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Anyway, I also, I got some, an article from the New York Times earlier this week um, by Adam Grant. And I don't know if everybody has already seen this, but it's actually discussing this kind of weird COVID feeling um, where, you know, things are a bit... <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, but not necessarily like full on depression where it's just like you're floating in... Bleh. Um, so it's, yeah, as I said, by Adam Grant and it's called, there's a name for the blah you're feeling. It's called languishing. And it's a discussion of of how we're all languishing, and yeah, you know, it's it's a reality, and also how you can kind of try to get yourself a little bit out of it. Um, yeah, so we can link that as well.
1: Yeah, I mean that's definitely a, a feeling I think that all of us share now. I like in the recent Baby Genius podcast that we both love. Um, they're talking about how sometimes this like shared trauma can help when the trauma is over to have a more close connection to even to strangers when you meet somebody at a pub or at work or somewhere you can draw from this and be like um did you like how what did you do uh how did you get through this and then you can immediately yeah. yeah and then you have immediately a rapport to to talk to each
0: other, and I mean that's that's why like we're such close friends, and like a lot of our close friends are from our PhD times because we went through that trauma together of the <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> the true PhD. I mean that's re- realistically that is that is it. Um <laughs> yes. but also I mean like so so my physical reality is I haven't hugged anybody since October. That's like my. <laughs> my so i think like yes i will have be bonding more with strangers but just because i'm going to be like walking up to strangers and like (laughs) quietly putting my arms around them and like snuggling onto their bosom like hello
1: (laughs) in the supermarket they're like "Uh, do you do you collect like the bonus points and just like come over like climb into their little booth and then hug them from behind and be like no i don't
0: (laughs) I, I'm, I mean, I'm honestly enjoying small talk so much when there's like just somebody saying something, I'm just, mm-hmm. hello, contact, like, can I touch yes. your face, please, let me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, but I also, I also do way more like chit chat with like strangers or neighbors and people in the before times that I would just like be very, Brief with because i'm i'm not made for for chit chat and small talk but by now it's such a refreshing change from the few yeah. people that i talk to usually to have somebody just like random and be like oh yeah it's, it is nice outside and um then stand there for two minutes and say also like nonsense. it's <laughs>
0: I mean, for me also, it's I, I've been in the UK now for like almost a year and a half, and I, I I've not really established because a year of that has been in COVID, and that's really weird. But like, <laughs> making small talk about the weather makes me feel really integrated into British society. I'm just <laughs> like, mm, it looks like it's gonna rain. Oh my goodness, I did so well. Like, <laughs> I just British for a full like three minutes. Like, oh, it was full warm, but British. now it's getting cooler. <laughs> like, oh yeah. Yeah, uh. sorry, British people. I, no, I don't <laughs> apologize. It's fine. <laughs> What's been happening with you, Yarm? You have really exciting news. I
1: have really exciting news. Yeah, I got vaccinated, and I know that in many countries, the UK and the United States included, that's not that much of big news. Like many people there got vaccinated by now. Um, Germany is still in the single digit percentages, so I'm really mm. happy about it that I I had the chance. And Twitter was really important for that. Like somebody on Twitter was like. What? Um, I had an appointment to get vaccinated at the end of May, so over a month out from now, um, to to get vaccinated. But then somebody on Twitter was like, "Look, I just che- checked and saw that there's so many free appointments right now. If you have, like, if you are in the right priority group, maybe check if you can change your appointment." And then I did. And then like I read that on Twitter, and like an hour later or something, I had like figured out everything, and then called a the hotline and stuff. I had an appointment for the very next day to get vaccinated. I was, like, so excited about this. Like, I had my uh, um, very high ups, but very low lows with the whole vaccination story. This was, like, technically my third appointment that I had. The first one was, like, Mm. I should get AstraZeneca. And the day before my AstraZeneca appointment, Germany stopped vaccinating people with AstraZeneca and was crushed. I was devastated. Like, I was – I rarely felt, like – more anguish and despair than in this day when I realized, like, the vaccination that promises me to get back, like, some safety for me and the people around me. Um, that this is. Far I mean, out it's also now. part
0: of the COVID thing of like having those heightened emotions, where like. Yeah. Yeah, I had I had one time when I was going to meet up with a friend, and uh, then they went. We went back into lockdown. It was in November, and like I was so distraught about it, yeah. and it was just. It was an unreasonable level, but I realized like that had been my like that was the highlight that I'd been I saw it as like what I was doing that entire month. Like I just put everything onto that one, like holding on to this moment of light. <laughs> like yes. it's gonna ha- and then it didn't happen and I was just like Oh yeah, no.
1: This is exactly how I felt back then. Um and But now you have it. I mean so you've I got one it. already. Now it's like I got it on Monday and um now it's like we're recording on a Thursday night and uh I had like uh like the the injection side hurt a little bit that was pretty immediate um and then i had like two days where i was a little bit hazy and slow and like on a first night or second night i had like a little bit of a fever mm. but i realized yeah. i was like really drained of all my energy for i think on, on wednesday was particularly bad so two days after getting the shot i was just like i couldn't focus at all and like the next so, day the, Pfizer right this one uh, Moderna I got the Moderna, Moderna one but the mRNA vaccine mm-hmm. um but now I'm I'm all good now and now I'm looking forward to my second shot um they say that there the side effects might be worse but if yeah. these side effects are like a 10% or 5% glimpse into what a real infection could be like I'm so glad to be vaccinated.
0: I mean, just like realistically, if it's only lasting a day or two, you can take the fever or whatever it is. Absolutely. You know.
1: Like with like in a heartbeat, like any time. I
0: saw on on Twitter that also happened. So in my suburb, somebody announced, oh, we've got a few extra vaccines and, you know, they expire at the end of the day. So you can come here and then like 10,000 people rocked up to that spot and... I guess they're not gonna do that again. <laughs> I missed I missed the opportunity and it's never gonna happen again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean the the thing with Twitter is it like for me it worked out but it's it shows like the problem in the system that we have in Germany is that there's like no central registration that you can rely on to learn about um available appointments or anything. So you have to be lucky that somebody on Twitter or that you know tells you that they saw that there's something... Or you have to constantly check yourself, which... Also, like, the
0: next time, like, somebody's annoyed at you for, like, spending hours and hours, like, <laughs> doing nothing on Twitter, you can be like, well, actually, yeah, <laughs> as I, it turns
1: out. Finally, something good happened on Twitter for me. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. it's... Um, I'm, I'm really happy this week about it. And I hope that, mo- like, technically, my immediate family around me, like my parents, especially, they should also have appointments um i hope it all works out for them like germany has this whole thing where we we don't really we can't make plans more than seven days ahead you like anything that's longer in a, in, in the future has a high chance of being completely uh sort of uh thrown over and changed because we like every week we roll the dice and we'll be like what's it going to be this week is it like Lockdown after tw- after ten PM. Is it we stop vaccinating with a certain dosage or whatever?
0: Do you have you have curfew at the moment? Lockdown yeah, after ten have, is what's happening.
1: Yeah, we have curfew. Um and that's weird. yeah. But we cool. like if you work after ten that's fine. You just can't be outside or get food after ten. But working is fine <laughs> in Germany. COVID
0: is vampires? <laughs>
1: covid is a is a like a leisure um virus like when you do leisure activities then the virus gets you if you work hard the virus can't get to you it's like respectful oh, that's
0: like that. nice it's <laughs> really a noble virus
1: yeah but so that was a very good week um i have one question for the listeners um we can do this briefly like we are interested in getting rice cookers but being germans we have way more experience with potatoes than with rice and maybe somebody can tell us if it's worth getting a rice cooker. Um, if you like, like we like eating rice, but we cook it in the pod. And then now I read so much about rice cookers that I sort of want to undo my knowledge on rice cookers. But I would like to Wait, hear are people, you asking
0: me if it's worthwhile to if get it's one? Good,
1: if it's a good idea to to have a mm-hmm. rice cooker or if it's one of these devices that you use for a week and then it collects dust because it takes longer than to, to cook the rice in there than in a pot. And so you're less like... Meh, nah, I'm just gonna. No, do it.
0: I feel like everybody who's ever owned a rice cooker has not gone back, right? Like that's the.
1: Yeah, I hope. Like, <laughs> I hope so. I that's that's why I'm asking. I'm trying to get a little bit of crowdsourcing information here because, um, with these things. Like the people online who write about it, obviously, if you are that much invested that you write about it, you're not saying...
0: <laughs> They're already in the pockets of big rice cooker. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> who knows what their opinion is? Exactly.
1: And so um, that's why I want to get like our listeners, the potential <laughs> rice cooker owners, um, to tell me if, if they regret having a rice cooker. Or if they
0: and and rice is a plant so technically this is this is still plant science and like, absolutely <laughs> cooking is kind of like a <laughs> chemical change which is like the a reaction <laughs> so 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 <laughs> sure
1: yeah which brings us to like our paper i think which is somewhat plant science related uh, we're going to talk about <laughs> why it is somewhat related in a second
0: what it's absolutely plant related <laughs>
1: It's the paper of the week. And you picked it, Tegan.
0: Yeah, so the paper this week is actually something that I've sort of had and I've meant to mention in the last two to three podcasts. I never got around to it. Um, And I wanted to talk about it because it is plant related, despite Yoram's like kind of rude hints (laughs) there. Um, But also, I think it's kind of plants and pipettes related because it's a topic that we seem to talk about like unnaturally often, I would say, like. There's a statistic overrepresentation of our mention of this topic, and that is um, the color blue. So this, you guys might have already seen this. There's been a lot of press releases and discussion about it in like popul- popular science um, blogs, and I even read an article in it about it in the the Daily Mail <laughs> this oh. morning. Or, no, not the Daily Mail, Mail Online. But I think it's I think it's close, right? Yeah, I um,
1: probably. It sounds very similar to me.
0: Oh, yeah, it's the same. It's Daily Mail. Um, so, okay, let's let's go into it. It's a publication that came out in Science Advances um, it, on the 7th of April. Um, it's got multiple first authors. So, Den- Denish um, Fenger and powers are joint co-first authors, um, and the title is Discovery of a Natural Cyan Blue, A Unique Food-Sourced Anthocyanin Could Replace Synthetic Brilliant Blue. So I think um, the only words in there are kind of up as a question is anthocyanin, um, which is basically just a molecule in plants. It's a type of metabolite, um, Mm -hmm. and we can discuss that a little bit later, a little bit further later on.
1: Yeah, blue is, is, we talk about this so much because blue is so special, right? Like blue is something that we do see in nature, but not that often. Like there's a couple of things, like you think of blueberries or like some um, some flowers that can be blue. But overall, we see it, see it um, rather rarely that something is blue in nature, most of the time we see like variations of green, of red or orange or yellow, um, because all of these are chemically quite simple to make, while blue is usually a little bit harder to make and therefore um, only made when it's very important, for example, to attract pollinators in the case of a flower. So...
0: Mm-hmm. May- and I think like even then the blues tend to be quite often like purpley blues or reddy blues or like, like it's not a pure blue, Um And part of that comes down to the molecule itself. Um, So blue colors in in plants often come from anthocyanins. So this is just a type of molecule. Um, And as Yoram said, it's it's a little bit harder to make or it's a little bit more energy intensive. It's like more effort to make these bluish molecules. But on top of this, these bluish molecules, like they're not always pure blue and they also can be responsive to the physical conditions of the cell, namely the acidity. So depending on how... Um, acidic the environment where the blue molecules are inside the plant they might tend to be a bit more red or they might change to be a bit more like bluey colored or purpley like depending on um, the background there so like it's hard to make blue but also you need a special chemical environment to to keep that blue in the right blue and not to like sort of squidge over a little bit to the more ready side
1: and this is one of my favorite science experiments that you can do at home in your kitchen and I'm still happy about this every time I do this um, when you're cooking. Because when you use um, red cabbage, um, you can adjust its color by the pH. And in the German language, it even has like an interesting sort of etymology because we call it in some parts of Germany, we call it Blaukraut, so blue cabbage. And in some places we call it Rotkraut, so red cabbage. And that's because, not because like some people are better with colors than the others or because it's two different species, but because in these different areas of Germany, they prepare the cabbage differently. Oh my goodness. Where (laughs) it's it's red, they prepare it with a sort of an acidic dressing, um, while in the area where it's more blue, they uh, prepare it with a salty dressing that doesn't have any vinegar in it. And based on the pH of the dressing that they're preparing the the cabbage with, it changes the color from like red to blue. And... um, that is
0: that's really i didn't know that 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 was actually i didn't know that it was called like blaukraut in some places like, yeah that's i
1: think in the incredible. south like in, in in bavaria there is some places where they call it blaukraut because they're like traditionally in cooking they don't use vinegar with the with the red cabbage and therefore and i think when you cook it as well like it it has a tendency to go rather for the blue when there's no acidity in it uh um and when you use a raw and you add um, vinegar to it, you get like a very r- deep red, red cabbage. Um,
0: so... Well, that's kind of a cool scientific experiment, and personally, I would be delighted if I got a blue food that then, like, I licked and it turned red because I had like an acidic tongue. That sounds really, really cool to me. Um, obviously, ultimately, when people are making things a certain color, they tend to prefer that they stay that color, um, especially if they've put, you know, a bit of an expensive coloring agent in. Like, if you if you make something blue with a bit of effort, you don't really want it to just like pop over to red. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, the anthocyanins have that problem, but also they're not very stable over time so they also just kind of lose their their blueness and and fade out um and this is the reason why when things are blue in foods so when we have colorings we basically have been using artificial colors which are just like chemicals that are made by chemical synthesis processes as opposed to chemicals that are uh, extracted from natural things like plants yeah. And the 2 for blue it's basically something called indigotine. So indigo probably indigotine, indigotine. Yeah, I don't no idea. know. But yeah, indigotin.
1: <laughs> indigotine. Um
0: indigotini. <laughs> and and brilliant blue, brilliant blue is the other one and I guess brilliant blue is the the one that is sort of the main thing that comes up.
1: I didn't look and this I up, th- but do you know if if the brilliant blue is the same brilliant bl- blue that we used in the lab because like there's this is Comassi stain, and it, sometimes on the on the bottles it says Comassi Brilliant Blue. And reading this now, I wondered, but I didn't actually look it up. It would have been smart to look it up, but so I was relying on you looking it up, <laughs> like knowing it.
0: I didn't. <laughs> I instead was trying to work out, like the the original article that I saw on on this paper was discussing, and also that the paper itself in the introduction was discussing how there aren't really any natural blue colors and how that's why it's really important to find a, a natural blue color. And I should mention here that this this paper is actually... like Some of the people involved in the research are like the Mars Corporation. So... The the big candy corporation. And for them it's really important to get a, a natural blue because they've made a pledge that by twenty twenty one they will stop using artificial blues. So, oh, I
1: didn't know that. Yeah.
0: In twenty sixteen Mars Wrigley, so this big like, you know, Mars Bar and, and Chewing Gum and it, like this huge company announced it would stop using artificial colours in its food products by twenty twenty one. So um yeah, this, this research is then conducted with um the Mars Candy Corporation, um, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's like really financially valuable to them. Yeah. yeah. The Mars Advanced Research Institute is, is what comes up.
1: The Mars Advanced yeah. Research Institute, if you just tell me that, I would not it think of candy. It sounds like we're going
0: to Mars. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> like we're also the Mars Wrigley Global Innovation Center. So definitely <laughs> they are involved here.
1: So I just looked it up um, So on the Wikipedia page of Komasi Brilliant Blue, which is the stuff we use in the lab to stain protein gels with, um, because it like interacts with proteins and colors them blue, so we can see where proteins are, um, has a little tagline underneath, not to be confused with Brilliant Blue FCF, which is the stuff that's added to foods to dye them blue. So apparently there are two different things, although the chemical structure for me uh, not being an organic chemist um they look somewhat similar but probably they're not the same um and can't be like used interchangeably
0: yeah so i spent some some time not enough time but a little bit of time trying to look to find out why we want to stop using chemical glue yeah. like because i can i can understand why there's consumer desire for things to be non-artificial but i'm always curious how much of this is a little bit non-scientific how much of it is just like oh natural things are better hey guys guess what cyanide totally natural also not good for you
1: like natural Um. or or chemical uh, chemically synthesized is no indicator for quality or like safety of foods in itself
0: Yeah, so I found like some discussions and it doesn't seem like there's anything super conclusive. It's still able to be used in the EU and like the EU is quite strict about things like colorings um, and like they're quite strict in their regulation compared to, for example, Australia. Um, And they allow it, but like as long as it doesn't pass a certain threshold. I was looking for papers that might support why this brilliant blue might be bad. And there was definitely people saying that there could be, you know, genotoxicity. But the p- couple of papers I found didn't seem super reliable. So I found something where it's called Chronic Toxicity of Two Food Colors, Brilliant Blue, FCF, and Indigo Teen, so the two blues. And <laughs> five beagle dogs received a dietary level of 2% and three dogs a level of 1% of Brilliant Blue for one year one dog died after 17 days another died after 46 weeks um they just basically look at deaths but it doesn't it's like five dogs it's it's very um yeah and then there was another study where like they fed the brilliant blue to rats and then some of them died so those dogs that died, four, four of the six dogs at the 2% level died during the two years, and one of the four was sacrificed because it was not very healthy. But all the deaths were attributed to intercurrent virus infections. <laughs> so basically, like, like, they had five dogs, but I also had six dogs. They had six dogs fed indigotonin. And then they died, but they seem to have died because they got a virus. But then also they were fed this brilliant blue. And then they say at the end that, oh, actually, because they died from the virus, we can't find that they got killed because of the blue, the indigo teen. But it just sounds really horrible because you're murdering beagle dogs. Like, it just... Yeah. It sounds really... And I'm laughing. I'm a horrible person. But it just... how How can it be published? Your dog's got a virus.
1: I would like to see more more experiments and more like...
0: You'd like to see more dead dogs is what you're saying.
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> you're a monster. Maybe first in other systems before you go to dogs. Um, maybe like mice or rats. Although that's also horrible. But yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then there was like, they, w- they w- did a rat. There's a different study that looked at rats. Um, and they found that feeding them this synthetic blue dye supplement to diet changed levels of some things although it wasn't really sure to me like i mean you can do any experiment and something will change you know like this this is not
1: yeah
0: um yeah with like but it seemed to affect wait wait it seemed to have caused a disturbance in spermatogenesis okay which seems unlikely to me but sure um I, I would be really happy if so another another thing I saw was that one of the the problems with these artificial dyes is that they don't seem to be absorbed into the body so they don't seem to be broken down, mm-hmm. which means they go into the environment. So then I was just imagining, like, everything becoming a little bit more blue, which, and I know this makes me a horrible person, but that doesn't seem so bad to me. Like, that seems quite charming if, like, <laughs> if the lakes are just, like, a bit more blue. I know, I know, guys, I know it's not great. Um, but <laughs> Slowly then,
1: like- <laughs> turning everything a little bit more blue and then you come up with new experiments to figure out a level of blueness. And, like, we're measuring CO2 in the atmosphere fear, and, like, taking little color charts outside and see, like, how blue the world around us is turning
0: <laughs> also like they were feeding these to albino rats so i like to imagine that like the rats became a bit blue <laughs> and then also maybe like their sperm became a little bit blue i mean Although i guess if it's not being processed they shouldn't become blue it should just like flush right out
1: definitely yeah or end up in like fatty tissues or something where it can't like where it's stored but not pr- broken but maybe down.
0: it flushes out via the sperm like the did- <laughs> Sorry, can I tell you my favorite fact? My favorite <laughs> biology fact. Did yes. I tell you this already? I think I told you this already.
1: But <laughs> <laughs> tell it to me again.
0: <laughs> I've told many people this in the last few days. So there are some bu- there are some butterflies. Like think a beautiful, cute little butterfly fluttering around. Like it's delightful. It's frolicking in the sunlight. It lands on a flower. It frolics off again. There are some butterflies that drink blood from mammals. Yeah, I knew um, that. Yeah. I think I've told maybe because I told you that you're probably. <laughs> No, also it was on the no such thing as a fish podcast, which is just really a truly amazing podcast. Um, Anyway, so they think that these butterflies maybe evolved from butterflies that could sort of get sugars from fruits. So they first evolved to sort of suck a little bit of fruit sugar, which seems like a natural move from maybe mm-hmm. flowers to fruits. And then they just like got really good at piercing fruit skin. They're like, you know what? I can also pierce mammal skin and suck some blood. And apparently... They, they do this because they, they lack sodium, so they need sodium in their diet, and that's why they drink a little bit of blood to get some sodium, which is like already a bit off, like <laughs> a vampire butterfly, not great. But then the even more slightly off thing is that only the male butterflies need to do this because the female butterflies get their sodium by donation from the males <laughs> during sex. <laughs> And frankly, if I had two options of how to get my sodium, I am drinking blood. (laughs) That's just, like, very, very unfortunate for the female butterfly. I would work out how to pierce... Like, I would just figure it out. Like, I would pierce skin and drink blood.
1: I would just go for more soy sauce in my diet, I think.
0: (laughs) This... All I'm saying is, like, female butterflies, you've got to get some feminist action going and, (laughs) like... You don't need a man. <laughs> you can work out how to do this for yourself. Just go and go and drink some marmoset blood or whatever. <laughs> anyway, I think we got a little bit off track there. Yeah, that's your bit. fault.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, so back to the paper. In the paper, they looked at um, anthocyanines um, from red cabbage, uh, the off like, blue cabbage. pH fame, uh, uh, because it's like red red cabbage has these anthocyanins it has already um, the potential to be quite blue but the problem there is in the red cabbage these anthocyanins are a mixture of different kinds of anthocyanins so there's not just like Mm -hmm. one kind of molecule but multiple ones belonging to the same group but they all have slightly different colors slightly different behaviors during the pH transition so even Mm -hmm. if you shift the pH to a point where most of them are blue not all of them are blue so you always get like a, a violet hue like a violet uh, sort of change in the color overall um and therefore like
0: realistically red cabbage is actually not even red it's kind of pinky purple
1: yeah exactly like it's not it's not like a, a bright red it's like always a mixture somewhere on like the, the red to blue spectrum um sometimes purple sometimes pinkish and um but not like a clean true blue is what you would like to have if you want to use this as a food additive Uh, And so they wanted to figure out uh, what are exactly the anthocyanins in the cabbage. um, And because when you chemically, like you know their chemical structure, based on that, you can then maybe isolate them better or modify them to a point that they they become um, more stable or better suited for your application, which is putting them in foods and staying blue for a long time.
0: Mm -hmm. So they basically... Got some cabbage and looked at all the different kinds of purpley, bluey, pinky pigments inside their cabbage samples. And they were very happy to find that there were a couple of them which seemed to have exactly like a pure blue colour. Yeah. It's just that those couple were really overwhelmed by the dominant other ones that were more reddish. <laughs> so, and I'm going to quote from the Daily Mail article here. The most dominant anthocyanin in red cabbage is, unsurprisingly, red. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so the thing is, they, they have fe- they've used mass spectrometry. So they've used this kind of method where they, they separate and they, they look really closely at all these different Types of colored molecules and they found some some blue ones um the specific one they're focusing on is something that they kind of assigned p2 that's just the name they gave it um and they're finding it but there's not very much of it um so they need to do something a little bit more
1: yeah uh, but what i want to mention here is because like you picked the paper tegan and i had a great pleasure of reading like through the results where it sort of starts with methods that I still know, with like mass spectrometry. Mm-hmm. Then it goes into nuclear magnetic resonance, still something I learned about it uh, at my... Can you Could
0: you explain that to me, what nuclear magnetic resonance is?
1: Pretty much you're looking at the interactions of the hydrogen atoms or the C13 a- atoms, which is what they use both methods. They looked at the hydrogen atoms and a specific kind of carbon atom atom in a molecule. And you sort of blast them with radio waves and they sort of start all shaking weirdly, and then they sort of go back to their normal stage. And this is when you watch them closely and do them some crazy mathematics on it, which I never understood. I, I've, I've like I've li- uh, listened to so many talks about like m- the method of NMR, and I n- never really understood how they come from like this weird signal that they get back. Then they do like throw math at it, and then they get like a spectrum where they can see like each of the hydrogen atom hydrogen atoms, how many other hydrogens it it sees. And based of that, then you can do some more crazy math and calculate the actual structure of the molecule. Because, you know, like, at this end, the hydrogen sees, like, four, and on the other end, it sees, like, five hydrogens, and then you can sort of have a big puzzle and puzzle it all together, and in the end, you can, like, draw the little, like, lines and and with like all the carbons and the hydrogens that you see in like textbooks you draw them based on what you learn from um, nuclear magnetic resonance
0: i want to say poke it and see how it jiggles and based on the way it jiggles you can kind of guess what it looks like
1: yeah but then it goes that. on and then they'll use like uh, something called 1d toxy or cozy or no easy or heteronuclear single quantum correlation spectroscopy, HSQC and HMBC and I have no idea what these methods are Isn't
0: that a bank? I think HMBC (laughs) is my local bank.
1: (laughs) Probably maybe they went to the bank and were like do you know this cabbage? Can you tell us what's in it? And maybe the clerk there at the bank was like oh yeah I actually like uh, I looked it up. Um, And then they came up with like a ridiculously long name for the actual molecule that they found. I mean
0: basically yeah basically they just did lots of important and complicated methods to find out that they could find this blue thing, but they didn't know what its structure was. They did all these methods to find out what exactly it looks like. And then based on that, they gave it an official... Scientific name, which has like there's there's very standardized rules of yeah. how you name a molecule based on its structure and where the bonds are. So, this one is 302020E synapolyl beta D, D, <laughs> beta D glucopyranosol, 5, o, beta D glucopyranosol, 50 beta D glucopyranosol, cyanidin. That wasn't too bad. It wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible. Oh my god, Joram. I think I read that so nicely that the connection with arm has dropped. So...
1: Yeah, you were gone while you were like reciting the, the molecular yeah, structure. Yeah, I just said
0: that I did it so well that I dropped the internet connection, but I don't know if that's true. Um, <laughs> okay, so basically they spent a lot of effort trying to find out what the hell this really nicely blue, blue thing was. And then the next thing was to kind of see how they could get the nicely blue blue thing so they 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 got it but it was only a really small amount of all of the bluey purpley things and they wanted to see like how we can shift the balance of all the bluey purple things there's more of the the nicely blue blue thing which is called p2 yeah uh
1: and they realize that when you add uh, aluminium ions to it so um a sort of solubilize aluminium in some way it's chemically a little bit more than that but if you add that to it like it assembles in these like cool like three-way symmetry structures like a little like three-way snowflake with aluminium in the center and then you have like the wings on of are like the p2 and the cyanine molecules and that shifts the color to a sort of cyan like blue that's fairly stable um uh and that's that's very cool but stability is a win here huh what is stability a win? is a yeah. win and P2 mm. is um, so P2 is a very cool molecule and a very sort of it's what they were looking for but P2 is not the dominant form there so they need more of mm-hmm. the P2 and to get more they did something and to me it sounded like science fiction because they were just like look we have all of these other um, anthocyanins they gave them like P6, P8 and whatnot um, and we would like to modify it So it's like P2. So we can take enzymes to do that. And so they looked at databases of enzymes, picked a couple of them that seemed promising, um, and then tested all of them and then also modified these enzymes and then found like enzymes that they could just like in the lab use to modify all of the um, sort of not perfect anthocyanins to all become P2, which is all perfect to have a blue color. And
0: so this is like the coolest thing of the paper to me. It's like, yeah. they're they're not just saying, hey, there's this, which is the one enzyme in cabbage which has made this P2? They're like, let's look at all the potential possibilities for enzymes that exist that we know to exist and see which of them could possibly help make us the most yeah. P2. And apparently they looked at 10 to the power of 20 protein sequences. So obviously they're not like extracting enzymes or, like, making enzymes and, like, testing them. They're using, like, computers and they're doing this in silico and they're just, like, going through all of these these different enzymes. Yeah. Um, and again, I might be quoting the Daily Mail here when I say that that is more than the number of stars in the universe. Cool fact. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. And I think, I mean, now you might wonder what, why there are, why do we know so many different enzymes? We don't really they used, like, um, automated predictions for mutations. So they took at all of the knowledge that we have from, like, enzymes that we actually catalogued and then looked at all of the permutations of those and saw if, uh, like, computated, calculated if these permutations would be useful. And that in itself, like, it sounds like something from Star Trek where, mm. like, they have, like, one of these impossible machines where you just, like, press a button and it, like, runs through all of these things. And it's like... Look, we, like, engineered this enzyme that fits perfectly for your cause, and...
0: Oh my goodness, it's like that <laughs> thing in Prometheus, where she, like, puts the, the microscope, and then she's like, go to DNA level, and then you see this molecule with, like, the letter A and the letter T, and it's like, no, but why? <laughs> and this yeah. is actually this, but actually cool, and the term is called genomic mining, which is just yeah beautiful. Like, mining is evil, but this is beautiful. <laughs>
1: yes. Uh, and so they came, like they found a working enzyme that they could modify to very efficiently convert all of these other anthocyanins into the very valuable P two form. Um, and they could show that it's like fairly stable, and also you could sort of enhance its stability by picking the right pH. Um, so over, like you you can store it, for example, in an acidic stage, and then when you want to use it you change the pH again so it becomes blue Um, and then it can stay blue for like up to 55 days um, is what they Mm -hmm. tested in the sugar syrup Um, and they lost very little of the color
0: and they didn't just make sugar syrup your arm oh no they also made blue ice cream candy coated lentils which gross and donut frosting
1: i mean candy coated lentils i i think it's a scientific term for m&ms right I lentils? Think, I don't think that. I thought it was like, like
0: the beans. I don't Maybe think that makes like sense.
1: Actual lentils that they candy coat. I think it's like the lentil-shaped candies. Which
0: that makes a lot more sense. I was imagining actual lentils, but again, I didn't read the paper. I only read the Daily Mail article, so that might have been why my confusion is existing. <laughs>
1: that 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 would be one of the worst kinds of candies. Um, just like literal lentils covered in sugar.
0: I don't know, you know, we have to have more protein in our diet and we should getting more like plant-based protein. And if lentils were covered in sugar, I might be more inclined to eat lentils, to be honest. <laughs> Otherwise, frankly, lentils can up their game in some other way.
1: <laughs> but yeah, that, so that's, that's the, the story. Um, it's <laughs> like... Reading the paper was sometimes a little bit difficult because it's so much into, like, organic chemistry and... uh, That's why
0: you should just read the Daily Mail
1: Analytical chemistry and and so on. But they also say, like, they combine techniques from analytical chemistry, food science, biochemistry, synthetic biology, color science, and computational chemistry um, to, like, identify and modify specifically a molecule that you find in the plants and... Um, so that that we can have like a naturally sourced blue dye that we can use to color our candy with. Um.
0: I personally really love this kind of more interdisciplinary sciences. I think that's that's a big move mm-hmm. in the research world, like not just focusing on our own very small expertise, but really mixing lots of different powers to get to a goal. But at the same time, I think we can all acknowledge that in that mix of different sciences, the computational science was by far the coolest yes like sure cabbage sure must spec but like <laughs> wow that genomic mining <laughs> yes
1: that really blew my mind and I, I had to read it like a couple of times to to really it think like, did they really mind. do that like just looking at that da- like like looking at the database and then trying something and then going in the lab and trying it out this is something we all do all the time but then we usually look in a database we see like hundreds of of potential things and we try to pick like 10 because 10 we can do 10 to the in 20 the
0: 10 to the 20 they did
1: uh, yeah and yeah it's it's really incredible another thing that i want to mention in the context here is um, a cool podcast that i i yeah not so long ago listened to it's from decoder ring and they're talking about the color blue specifically in foods um and what it means to us humans because Um, There has been the story that in the 1970s, there was a dinner party, a famous dinner party, where they would um, serve the guests a steak that was dyed blue, or there was like a blue light shining on it. So the steak looked blue, and the people were eating it, and they felt very, very sick from eating it. Mm -hmm. This is the story. And in the podcast, they try to figure out if this really happened. And by doing so, they go through like, the color signs and the food signs of why don't we have so many things that are blue um, and it's sort of a technical problem but also um, a sort of a sensory problem like eating blue stuff mm-hmm. for us is often uh, feels really weird and unnatural in a, in a way that it actually makes us feel sick um, there have been all these I stu- told you
0: that that when we were quite young we had a role of cooking dinner once a week for my family that was like sort of how we learned to cook And I made blue rice once and like my parents tried to be really encouraging to like, let us learn to cook. But that was the one time where my dad was like, just, just don't do that again. Like the rice is fine. Just like, we don't need it to be blue. (laughs) It's just not. (laughs) And there was nothing, like there was no flavor to the rice. It was a bit overcooked because I was, you know, 12 or something, but like it was fine. It was just blue. And he was like, I just, I just don't want to be eating blue rice.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes. And this is what Dakota Ring
0: is a brilliant podcast
1: yeah um so if you are more interested in uh, learning about the history of the color blue in food um go listen to that and there they come to the conclusion that blue is now mostly used um for sweets um and not really for like sort of grown-up foods like we don't really dye like a steak blue in reality or yogurt or anything like but Like, candy can be blue and we still feel happy about it. And uh, I mean, that makes sense now, knowing that the Mars company was involved in this study, um, that they have great interest because they are really in the market for it. Whereas, um, like, yeah, other areas, maybe not so much.
0: I find that interesting in the context of this paper because, you know, this is a blue that is from anthocyanins and they are traditionally linked to, you know, being antioxidants, being healthy, like blueberries are seen as is as very, very good for you because of their coloring. So now that we will have in some years time, I guess, but we will have this natural blue that comes from anthocyanins, maybe blue will again shift and become, be seen as like less of a fluorescent hyperactive inducing mm-hmm. like candy color and actually become seen as a health color again
1: <laughs> yeah it could be for interesting not so much again
0: like for the first time
1: apparently there was like a wave in the 90s where a lot of the food manufacturers uh, introduced blue color there was like blue soda and um i don't know they, they had a couple of other examples as well where suddenly like like even a Heinz ketchup um, was dyed blue yeah. and 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 sold like this because it was suddenly possible. Um, I don't know if like a regulation change or like the availability of some of these food dyes that we talked about uh, became like changed. I mean became that's available.
0: that's weird because also it feels like not only have you made it blue, you first had to get rid of the red. That feels that's like an extra level of strangeness, right? That you have yes. to bleach your ketchup and then, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, that paper was Discovery of a Natural Cyan Blue, a Unique Food Source Anthocyanin Could Replace Synthetic Brilliant Blue. And it's by Dinesh Fenger and Powers et al. And it came out in Science Advances in April of 2021. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where
1: the fun begins. Um, So, yeah, my first um, thing that I brought today uh, is something that I found about new approaches for teaching science remotely um, that arise from the COVID-19 crisis. And I found it quite interesting because there they looked sort of systematically at some things that they did at New York University um, in changing their teaching methods because they suddenly couldn't meet in person anymore. And they changed the way they would hold their classes and then also looked at how well that worked. And I quite liked that because they did some sort of individual outside activities that didn't rely on the whole class coming together and doing it, but everybody would do their own um, practice work and then come back together and discuss it in a virtual environment. They had a biodiversity activity um, that they called Backyard Biodiversity where they required the students to walk around their neighborhoods and identify unique plant species there, and then they would mm-hmm. use the um, like an identification app to figure out like what these species are, and then they would compare that and discuss that and sort of do biodiversity basic research um, on their findings in their local vicinity. Uh, And then also, and there they, with like 60 undergraduates, they, that had no botany experience, they identified over 1,200 species of plants around the globe while doing this research. So quite impressive. And they also Mm -hmm. had like, they had a couple of others. Another one that they did was like an environmental science research project where they were discussing and analyzing the relationship between humans and the environment in the terms of the COVID crisis. Uh, And talking about things like myths and misconceptions and develop key critical thinking skills and stuff like that. And what was very interesting is that when they analyzed the efficiency of all of that, um, they saw that the students learned a lot better using these methods than compared to conventional methods where they would come together in a classroom and maybe do an excursion together and then work as a group on certain things. Um, sort of sending them out individually and then coming back and analyzing and working on the results seem to strengthen the individual learning of these different um, skills, which I find quite, quite interesting and sort of hopeful to take this away from this whole like pandemic crisis that we can improve our teaching because we were forced to break up like systems that we had in place um, and rethink them and, by rethinking them, making them better. So in the future, even if we can meet in person again, maybe for some activities, it's actually useful to keep them sort of partly virtual or part, partly isolated, because then the individuals have a better chance of, of really learning the skills. Um, so I quite liked reading that story. Um, it's sort of a write-up from the New York University. I think they also published a paper um, based on their findings on the educational methods. Um, So, yeah, that's something that I would like to see.
0: Yeah, so a bit related to that, um, there's a a journal called Ecology and Evolution, um, one of Wiley's uh, journals, and they've had, um, I think the last two issues have been on this topic of uh, taking learning online in EcoEvo, um, but it's had different papers kind of discussing this thing. and Yeah, one of them is looking at... um, Backyard Evolutionary Biology, Investigating Local Flowers, Brings Learning to Life. So it's it's also got kind of different publications related to this this online stuff. And I think there's quite a lot of publications that have come out in the last year looking at how to optimize online learning. And like I do agree, I think there's like some really major limitations, but it would be nice if we can say, Oh, there are also good things and make sure we keep those hanging mm-hmm. around in future times.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for me personally, for example, it's like access to conferences. There's something coming up this fall in that's like a couple of cities away from Berlin, and having a, a family with a young child just means I can't really access this conference. Um, mm-hmm. And last year it was virtual; I could access. This year they try to do it in person again. I don't know if it will actually be possible, but whatever. But um, this means I it will be less accessible for me, and I would like to have more accessible events in the future. So I hope this will sort of stay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think there is that that kind of thing. I mean, there's there's definitely some major problems with online conferences and learning as well. And I think there's that kind of thing where a lot of us are getting Zoom fatigue so I can see a responsive thing where once we can travel, it kind of swings way back in the other direction where it's like, okay, everything in person now, we're done with this. But that would be a shame. Yeah. I mean, that would definitely have some some yeah. huge cost to people. Um, I wanted to give a really quick shout out to something, um, which is we've been doing this kind of April science challenge on Instagram where we just like have a different prompt every day and we're discussing, you know, things that just – I don't know, random stuff, just as a, a reason to have different posts um, on different topics each day. And one of ours was talking about publications, and we sort of were talking about how publications can be important, but also, you know, this this thing in academia where publications seem to have become the important thing, not just an impo- important thing. Um, but I want to give a shout out to Control and Variable. Um, the Control and the Variable are on, on Instagram. Um, who posted a paper with a really cool name and it's called see you later alligator a dynamic regulation of the tour c1 stress response pathway and i think it's one of the the (laughs) (laughs) the furthest reaching (laughs) attempts to have a funny title um because there's there's a multi protein SEA complex, which is a regulator of TORC C1. And it has another name that is Gator. So it's like the one and the same thing. And they've put see you later, Ali Gator. <laughs> um, but well done. I, you know, it made me pay attention. So <laughs> very cool. I always enjoy this.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really cool. I have a small thing. Um, um, a new favorite kind of plot, and I know that is like very specific, but um, I will try to put this in the chapter um, art right now, so you can see what I'm talking about. Um, so I, somebody did a mistake when setting up the the their plots for something, and they create something that they call the "I just beat solitaire" plot. Um, which is this card game, and I don't know if you remember this from like I don't know Windows ninety five. I don't know if it's still bundled with Windows, but when you win it, when you were winning, you would see all of these card stacks drop down, and it had like this very specific aesthetic. And in this plot, they like added the label to every single data point so they get the (laughs) same aesthetic and i I just love it and i think it's actually it has some functionality to it i actually like this as a way of representing data in some contexts um so check out like the the image that we put in like it should be visible in your podcast app but also check out the the twitter thread because they go a little bit into details um because then they like went through a couple of iterations of these and then other people chimed in were like oh yeah this also happened to me like this is like apparently a mistake that happens to to many people trying to do plots uh in their software so yeah my new favorite kind of plot
0: um i became a little bit interested i'm sure probably people know about this already but joram have you heard about wild parsnip what parsnip wild parsnip
1: no not really no
0: so the species is Pastinaca sativa. Um, it's kind of just like a plant which has yellow flowers, um, but the the plant sap has this special quality where it can basically burn you. Oh, that's a nice. But it doesn't burn it sort of directly. Instead, it puts some substance. There's a substance in the the sap. It's chemicals. They're called furano and these are causing your skin to be sensitive to ultraviolet light. So basically it has this sort of indirect sort of vampire effect where you you become extra sensitive to light from getting this sap on you, like where you get the sap on you. And it's not just that plant, there's other plants. So apparently yeah. carrot, celery, fennel, fig, hogweed, mustard, dill, parsley, lime, these can all have this response. It's called phytophotodermatitis. So like...
1: Plant yeah, I think that like the phyto, for-
0: the plant, the photo, the light, like, and the dermatitis is the skin. Um, yeah, but yeah,
1: yeah, that that's isn't that also like it's in some poison ivy plants? Like, I, I remember, like, this is a like a little bit of a tangent anecdote but uh, I had the chance of of meeting Randall Munro at an event uh where uh, he was speaking
0: wow wow for the celebrity drop
1: yes but like I talked to him for a little bit uh and uh he was like so what do you do and I was like yeah I'm a plant scientist and it was like look I always wondered about this as like poison ivy why does it sting us like that why does it have like this effect <laughs> on our skin so mean um and then I, I mean, he's from the United States, and the poison ivy there is very different from like the stinging nettle that we have in Central Europe. Um, mm-hmm. So poison, like stinging nettle, is annoying, but poison ivy can be really dangerous. Like people who have like a lot of poison ivy on their skin, they can, they sometimes have to be administered uh, to hospitals, as far as I know. And well, so, stinging like,
0: nettle is like a sharp sting that then goes away. It's kind of like a bee sting that goes away, whereas the poison ivy is like a rash that can yeah. sort of faster right
1: yeah and i think then like later on i read up on it and i was like so what's what's going on here um and i think i read that's like a similar effect in poison ivy that it can make like your skin extremely sensitive to light as well um and sort of have this like long-lasting chemical burn that happens even like hours after you've touched the plant and you think you're sort of safe because you have no no symptoms but then you get sunlight on it and suddenly it gets really really bad um so yeah i didn't know that you have that in so many crops as well this like Mm. scary effect really (laughs) like it sounds yeah almost like like a like a curse or something like magical something that like you touch it and then like hours later when the sun hits you you feel the pain
0: yeah it seems like extra mean-spirited right like it's it's sort of delayed revenge almost um so I'm just looking at a kind of um casual online article. I haven't looked into like the science behind this very much, but it says that poison ivy is a slightly different effect. So I'm not okay. sure. I mean again, it's something I definitely need to research, but
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I might be mixing it up. It's like a couple of years ago. But I thought it was like I thought I read about definitely this like this effect that you the phyto photodermatitis. Is something that I've-
0: apparently for poison ivy might be urushiol is the the active like the active ingredient that the rash appearing mm-hmm. the rash causing ingredient. Apparently, you can also if you burn poison ivy, the smoke can also get into your like and there's like you can get irritation internally from breathing <laughs> in poison ivies. Wow, yeah, it's, how it's mean!
1: Like like stinging nettle is something that is even grown actively by gardeners here because if you sort of ferment it for a bit it's like good for your garden you can like spray it as like a mild pesticide on your crops and it's fine and safe and so on i think nobody would actively try to grow poison ivy where they can because i think it's it's such a mean plant in so many ways that you like you try to avoid it at all costs like you don't want to have it near where you live
0: I was definitely surprised when I first came to Europe and got like stung by by nettle or something similar the first time I was not expecting.
1: Yeah, I don't know. For that. me, it's something that I I can't remember when the last time was that I was stung by it because you sort of learn that you just don't touch this plant and you can recognize it. I can spot it very easily um and so it's true
0: it's not at all intuitive but once you've been stung you pretty quickly learn what it looks like (laughs) yeah
1: and then you just avoid it and it's fine i know as a child like when you run through like bushes and stuff you constantly get stuck and then you're just like itchy for the day uh and then it's fine
0: it's Uh, really robust too like i pulled like i had a ton in my garden i pulled it up and i put it in the compost bin and it's now growing out of the compost bin.
1: Yeah, it's really hard to kill and hard to get rid of. Like they say, when you start growing it in your garden, it pretty much becomes an eternal part of your garden. Yeah, like you, you can't dig it up, but if there's like some piece of root that remain in the soil, they will just like sprout again, and you'll have more in the next year. So yeah, it's <laughs> it's also a tough plant, but I think it's not as evil as, as stinging nettle uh, as poison ivy uh, <laughs> from like North America. I have a story about natural genetically modified organisms. Um, And I think we had a couple of these stories in the past. I just came across another story on the conversation um, about a new study that was done um, where they looked at grasses uh, specifically um, and analyzed, like looked at the evolutionary history of all of the genes they could identify in a grass. And this is a study or a write-up by Luke Dunning, who was part of the study. Uh, from a University of Sheffield in United uh, United Kingdom, and they found hundreds of genes that did not have the same evolutionary history as uh, the rest of the genome. So by looking at specific markers in the genome, you can sort of trace it back where on on the on the tree of life that you draw with like the all of the different species, um, you can sort of draw a path to your species. And most of the genome fits within that path but hundreds of genes don't and that means they were not sort of acquired earlier and then mutated with the rest of it they were acquired at a certain point sort of laterally from different species sometimes from like very far distantly related genes um, sometimes from other grasses but also from other organisms um, which makes it sort of genetic modification these are not part of sort of the classical evolutionary pathway of just like shuffling around your genetic information a little bit, changing it a little bit, and then adapting the, uh, by doing this to, to your environment. But instead, it means getting genetic material from something completely different, from a different plant, putting that into your genome and holding onto it for a long time. Uh, and this came sort of as a surprise uh, were that many genes um, in grasses specifically, uh, there are different pathways where this can happen. Um, sometimes plants can sort of just like touch um be be hurt so that the cell contents merge and then there's a chance that genetic material will move from one plant to the other and be integrated but um more often it's bacteria for example that uh, in rhizomes so in root nodules um so in little like pockets and the roots there are these bacteria that grow there um some of them fix nitrogen and are very important for the plants and if these bacterial colonies they sort of end up with one plant um they can take up some genes there and then they go to another plant and they can insert these genes again there and this mm-hmm. is sort of a passive process it's not necessarily sort of actively inserting it um but this way dna can travel from one plant to the other plant without um, them really touching um and this is scientifically interesting, but also interesting for like the whole genetic modification debate, because it, on one hand, shows that genetic like movement of genes is something that's fairly common and happening all the time in nature. But it also shows that whenever you put a gene somewhere out in the field there's a chance that it will travel somewhere else where you can't control it anymore. So it sort of works sort of in favor of genetic modification by humans, but also against genetic modification by humans because you can't really make the case of saying like, look, we put it in such a way into the plant that it can't move away anymore because we know from evolutionary history that there's always a chance that these genes can move. But overall, it's just like really interesting. That's many, many grasses are actually genetically modified but just not by humans but sort of by bacteria by chance by standing close to each other
0: I feel like you're you're pushing your pro gmo agenda there Yarm.
1: <laughs> no as I said like it you can always also say like look maybe it's too risky to do genetic modification because you, we we can't contain it and this is something that I it's like this: like if the genie is out of the bottle, it's really hard to p- put it back in, right? If once we put something in a field and it escaped, we can't just collect all of the plants that it's escaped to because we can't find them. So it's just something that we have to take into consideration. Um, I mean, I personally think that we are modifying our crops all the time even without putting transgenes in it. So I'm not too worried about this. Um, but... It's simply natural to call genetic modification something that's only artificial. Like it's happening in hundreds of cases in grass species and many other species as well.
0: Okay, guys, we seem to have hit some technical difficulties where I can no longer talk to Yoram, So we do have to wrap up. We don't have a cat fact for today. But if you want to, you can find us on all of the appropriate social medias and websites. So if you want to find us and talk to me on Instagram or Facebook, it's at Plants and Pipettes.
1: And on Twitter, you can talk to me. That's at Plants
0: um, we also have a blog that we'll be starting up again um, in the brand new month of May. Um, it's www.plantandpupettes.com and there we write articles twice a week on cool things that we enjoy in the field of plant science.
1: Uh, and I think that's it. Like Our opening and mu- closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And goodbye.
0: Bye.